welcome to the Emirates MBD Market Matters podcast. I'm Katija Huck, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Edward Bell and Daniel Richards. And we're going to be talking about food inflation, which is a, a global issue at the moment. Um, but we're going to be focusing on the MENA region uh, today. Hi, Danny. Hi, Ed. Hello. So the conflict in Ukraine is now entering its third month. Clearly, the humanitarian impact has been devastating, but there's also been a significant impact on the global economy. In terms of growth, the IMF and the World Bank have recently downgraded their global growth forecasts for this year, citing the conflict in Ukraine as the main reason. There's also been a disruption to the supply of energy and other commodities, which has pushed up the prices of these commodities and I guess exacerbated the inflation that we've already seen emerge over the last year because of the COVID-related supply chain disruptions um, that have become evident. In our region, we've already seen this feed through in key markets and at a faster rate than in the bigger developed economies. So for example, in Egypt, food prices were up almost 20% year on year in March. And in Turkey, they were up almost 70% last month over the, the, the year before. But before we get into what's happening with food prices specifically in our region, I think, um, Ed, can you talk us through why what is happening in Ukraine is having such a big impact on global food prices and how vulnerable are these to these price increases are countries in the MENA region? Yeah, sure. So I think just to take a step back, we can look at the passed through uh, from the war into food costs that we're experiencing here in the Middle East region and North Africa region via kind of three mechanisms. That's fuel, fertilizer, and the underlying food costs. So as you noted, Russia, a major exporter of energy commodities, whether that's uh, oil and refined products, natural gas, or coal. And we've seen sanctions being imposed by the United States, the UK, and a couple of others on imports of oil. Uh, and many firms are actually choosing to self-sanction and avoid Russian products. So that tightens up global energy markets and forces a reliance on other producers um, or causes a shut-in of Russian oil output. And that means just across the entire agricultural supply chain, higher energy input costs, whether that's uh, you know on-farm costs or for shipping uh, or for deliveries. So all those costs, the energy-related costs, are increasing as well. Second is that fertilizer element. Russia is a major producer of fertilizers like potash, uh, phosphates, and nitrogen, and has a very large share of the export market for those commodities as well. So any restriction on the availability of those fertilizer supplies, whether it's through firms, again, choosing to sort of self-sanction and not wanting to engage with a Russian counterparty, uh, or because Russia itself chooses to restrict uh, the trade, means that there's going to be less ability for agricultural producers to use fertilizer. That means lower yields and smaller crops going forward. And finally is the actual food that is produced from both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and it's really kind of hard to underestimate just how critical they are to global supplies. So together, they accounted for almost 30% of global wheat exports from 2017 to 2021 marketing years, um, and about 18% of total what's called coarse grain exports. Those are things like corn, uh, barley, rye, which are largely used in animal feed. When you look beyond kind of cereals, beyond grains, both countries are big producers of sunflower seed and the associated meal and uh, oil that goes along with that. So vegetable oil, uh, oil input costs are going to go up as well. 
So those are enormous volumes for global food markets to have to compensate for. And hence, we've seen uh, prices shoot up for commodities like wheat and corn, the basic source of a lot of calories globally, and particularly in emerging economies, including the ones here uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Now, we're particularly acutely exposed, I think, to the conflict via the food dimension because the Middle East and North Africa are highly dependent on food imports to meet the demands of their populations. Globally, MENA has the lowest amount of arable land compared with basically any other major geographic uh, region. Less than 5% of the total land area area is available for agricultural production. That does vary widely, right? So we have countries like Syria and Morocco, which have much stronger levels or higher levels of about, say, 15 to 20%. But in countries like the, the Gulf countries, it falls to less than 2% in some cases. So that means foods needs to be imported. And that can be either in the basic commodity form, like wheat or corn or soybeans, or in a processed or value-added stage. Uh, more than 50% of the total wheat consumed in the broader Middle East region comes from imports. And in North Africa, that's closer to 60%. Wheat uh, through bed, bread products is really a major source of a lot of calories for much of the population in the region. So any changes in the kind of wholesale prices are, are really an acute source of uh, economic pressure. So which countries in the MENA region then get most of their imports from Russia, Ukraine specifically? I mean, I understand obviously the GCC countries have the least amount of arable land. So um, in the UAE's case, for example, around 90% of the UAE's food requirement is imported. Um, but in terms of exposure to the Black Sea exports in particular, which countries are the most vulnerable? Yeah, so across the region, the... Black Sea exporters, Russia and Ukraine, were very much the kind of cornerstone of the supply of those basic commodities. So if we just take a look at wheat as the kind of most important one um, coming out to the region, it was the, those two countries were probably the single largest source of imports, and in some cases, the majority source of all imports for almost all the countries across the region. When you look at the UAE, for instance, more than 60% of its total wheat imports came from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, in Egypt, that number is actually closer to 80%. Um, and we look at, stretch out across some of the region, Turkey also very reliant on imports of wheat from both Ukraine and um, Russia. The one country that's actually a little bit of an outlier is Saudi Arabia, where most of their wheat imports come from EU origins. So that's largely down to France being a big wheat exporter, uh, but also places like Australia. So the interruption to supplies coming out from the Black Sea uh, wheat exporter is going to be acutely felt pretty much across the region with one or two notable exceptions. And then I guess there are other factors like droughts, which will affect wheat production in even places like Australia, which is going to contribute presumably to the, the shortages that we're seeing globally. But I think that does explain to some extent why the food inflation in countries like Egypt and Turkey, for example, have been so much higher than um, in some of the other MENA countries and, and in some of the GCC countries, at least so far. Now, Danny, the food inflation that we're seeing in the MENA countries, is that just due to the increase in the global price of those commodities, or is there something else going on there? Well, that is, of course, a pretty big, big contributing factor, and that's only been exacerbated since that conflict in, uh, in Ukraine began. But actually, food inflation was already uh, high and heading higher in many countries in the region, even prior to Ukraine crisis and that very sharp rise in uh, global prices. 
That was due to a number of local factors, whether that be regional droughts, which uh, weighed on domestic grain production, but also currency weakness that were also uh, pushed up the price of its imports. And we've seen that in Turkey, as you mentioned, in the intro, Katija, we had uh, food price inflation topping 70% there. And a large part of that has been down to uh, that depreciation, that sharp depreciation that we saw in the lira in the second half of last year. And then in Lebanon, which has been dealing with multiple crises over the past two years, food inflation was over 480% year on year in January as the, uh, the currency virus collapsed. But also we had the uh, major grain silo in Beirut uh, actually exploded in the port blast there in 2020. And uh, food inflation there has fallen slightly, but it's still at 390% in March. And that is, of course, quite an extreme example. But even in stable Morocco, we had food inflation hit 5.5% year on year in February. And that compares to an average of 0.8% over 2021. And that is one place that has been affected by a uh, regional drought. Uh, now, as I mentioned, since that latest uh, drive higher in global prices has begun since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, this has already been exacerbated even further. And in the data we've had for March so far, we've seen uh, food inflation head higher again. Given the outsized proportion of food in emerging market CPI baskets, as Ed alluded to, this will drive headline inflation higher also. And that prompts increasingly difficult choices for central banks as they look to curb that price growth, but at the same time, they're also seeking to support the economic recovery from the pandemic and also keep government debt servicing costs relatively low. And this is especially the case, these difficulties, especially the case given that much of that inflationary pressure is still external, although we are seeing some strong rises in core inflation now also. From, from what it sounds like, it's really the, you know, the lower income segments of the market, which are going to be harder hit. And a lot of these economies haven't really recovered from the pandemic. Um, and so governments probably don't have a huge amount of cushion that they can use to try and mitigate the impacts on those segments of the population that are hardest hit by, for example, increasing subsidies or um, offering some kind of uh, financial assistance. Um, so what can they actually do to try and mitigate the impact of what's really an external supply shock? on their, on their um, consumers? Yeah, it's a very difficult situation for these regional governments. I think they're very conscious that, as you mentioned, large numbers of their population live below or near the poverty line, and these food price increases will weigh very heavily on households. So governments are doing what they can to support them. And in Egypt, for instance, we've seen um, that the authorities there have frozen the price of bread from free market suppliers, in addition to that provided by the state and the export of key foodstuffs like wheat and cooking oil has been banned. And government is also now looking for new wheat suppliers such as India and Argentina to uh, supplement, as Ed mentioned, the very high levels of Black Sea wheat imports. But nevertheless, already in March, we've seen food price inflation in Egypt rose to 19.7% year on year. And that contributed to a headline figure of 10.5%. In Egypt, we've also seen currency depreciation, which will add to that over the coming months. Um, other countries are also looking to boost their subsidies. In Morocco, uh, the government had actually already substantially increased its wheat subsidy back in February before the conflict in Ukraine, as the country grappled with that local drought there. And we think more such measures are probably now likely. And other countries like Tunisia will also be forced to up their subsidy payments uh, as well. And then um, also in Iraq, there's actually already been some small-scale protests against high bread prices, and that's prompted the government there to 
intervene with new support measures directly to those most affected. Now, the effect of all this will be to weigh further on MENA countries' fiscal and current account balances, uh, especially for those oil importers that are not set to see an export windfall from those higher hydrocarbons costs. They're dealing with higher food prices and also as higher oil prices. Uh, there has been incoming bilateral support. We've seen the EU has provided funds to Tunisia, and we've also seen GCC countries have made investment commitments in Egypt in addition to uh, increasing their deposits at the central bank. But I think this year, looking ahead, IMF support could prove crucial as to how well these regional governments navigate these pretty high challenges. Uh, the, the fund has made clear, the IMF has made clear that it's ready and willing to help. And I think Egypt, uh, uh, especially, has got off on the front foot with its currency depreciation and rate hike already, already implemented in March. But for Tunisia and, Tunisia and Lebanon, for instance, the political unity of purpose that is needed to implement these requisite reforms to secure IMF support does not appear to be there just yet. Right. And IMF support typically is conditional on some kind of reform program, which is often quite painful to implement as well. So there certainly are um, a number of different issues which governments would need to navigate. Um, they do need support to help to fund uh, subsidies and, and social care. Um, they can either borrow, presumably, in order to do that, but if um, or then they turn to international financial institutions like the IMF and World Bank, which potentially then would extract um, much greater reform commitments from a lot of these uh, governments as well. Um, I guess, you know, that does potentially raise the risk of uh, the social consequences and, and the political consequences of this kind of food inflation. We've already seen um, a change in, in governments uh, in Pakistan on the back of uh, these high food prices. But at the moment, it certainly looks like um, the North African countries and, and the rest of the MENA region are perhaps um, not quite there yet. And hopefully, um, we'll be able to avoid that kind of, of social disruption. Um, is that something that you um, have a view on? Yes, I think you're right. For the time being, at least, we haven't seen that kind of widespread uh, demonstrations or protests. But as I mentioned, we have seen some smaller outbreaks, such as in Iraq. So governments will be very conscious of trying to navigate this. Uh, the issue is, as you say, those IMF support will often come with pretty stringent requirements, and that can run up against uh, opposition. And it really depends on how, um, how much political capital the, uh, the government in place has at the time, I guess. And given the kind of uh, political impasse we've seen in Tunisia and Lebanon, it's questionable whether they will be able to push through the kind of, kind of reforms that the IMF will require. In Tunisia, for instance, we've already seen the very powerful UGTT labor union come out and say that it will oppose some of those uh, proposed reforms. And if there isn't a way through, a national dialogue that can see the way through this, then the risk is that the that regional governments in Tunisia in particular, is a risk here, start to default on their debt. And we've already seen uh, Tunisia has been downgraded again by the, by the uh, main ratings agencies, and must despite central bank assurances to investors that there are no plans as yet to restructure their debt. And how about in the uh, GCC countries, Katija? Are they, how are they dealing with uh, higher food prices? So the GCC are in a much stronger position than most of the other MENA countries simply because they are oil exporters and high oil prices 
and increased production means that most of them, all of them, in fact, will be running uh, a fiscal surplus this year to varying degrees. In some cases, in Saudi Arabia's case and the UAE's case, for example, quite substantial fiscal surpluses are likely this year. So they have the means to subsidize food imports if they choose to do so. Um, and I think another benefit for the GCC countries is because their currencies are pegged to the dollar, they don't have that element of depreciation-driven inflation that we've seen in, in some of the other MENA countries um, that has actually added to uh, the pressures. Um, but that's not to say that there's no food inflation in the GCC. Um, so if we look at the most recent data across the region, um, in Oman, we've got food inflation running at just under 5%. Um, it's, it's around 3% in Saudi Arabia and Qatar. But for uh, Bahrain and Oman, sorry, Bahrain and Kuwait, it's actually quite a lot higher. So food inflation in Bahrain was around 12% uh, last month, and it's running at around 7% in Kuwait. Now, the UAE hasn't published any CPI data for 2022 yet, but already in, in the fourth quarter of last year, we did see food inflation ticking higher. In December, it came in at just under 4% year on year. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the, uh, the UAE government has announced that it will tighten rules on importers um, to make it difficult for them to raise prices by more than um, the change in global prices would would justify. So this will help to prevent price gouging. Um, but ultimately, the cost of food imports into the UAE will go up and firms will have to pass those increases on to consumers. So we do think um, that food inflation will probably accelerate this year, along with, of course, um, higher petrol prices, which UAE consumers are feeling um, quite sharply, UAE being the only country in the GCC that is actually passing on high global oil prices um, onto consumers. And of course, over the last year or so, we've seen housing costs rise as well. So those are the three big uh, expenditure components for most households, and the cost of those uh, will certainly pick up this year. And that does mean that households will have less than to spend on non-essential items, and that potentially has a negative um, uh, impact on domestic demand and, and GDP growth. So that's not a, a great story really um, anywhere in MENA in terms of inflation. Um, but I guess the big question is, where do we go from here? Because there doesn't seem to be any sign of an end to the conflict in Ukraine. So it doesn't look like um, the exports from that region will be able to restart um, at, at some point this year. And of course, if the conflict continues as it, as it has been, then the um, season for planting uh, new crops will also potentially pass without those uh, those crops being sowed. And so it could have an impact on supply into 2023 and perhaps beyond. Um, so, Ed, what does this mean for um, the long-term supply of these key commodities, uh, wheat, corn, barley? Um, is there uh, another source of um, these products, but potentially from other countries or are we basically in, in a world now where we've got uh, a significant downward shift in the supply of, of food? Yeah, so right now there's there's not much that I think uh, commodity markets can do to adjust. We would have, you know, winter wheat um, is already in the ground in some of the big exporters, including in Ukraine as well. So that'll be coming up for harvest during this year's Northern Hemisphere uh, summer season. 
there is some adjustment adjustment that could be done from some big ag exporters uh, like Canada, parts of the northern United States, for instance, can plant an increased uh, wheat harvest for their summer season or their spring wheat season. But again, that's not going to have an immediate impact in the very near term. Now, farmers can be responsive to high prices, right? So high prices are usually a good or high prices usually end up causing low prices as farmers uh, plant a lot more. It's really kind of a bust and boom cycle of all kind of commodities. But it's important to remember that it's not just the wholesale selling price that has increased as well. All of those farmers' input costs have increased too. So even though it might look very appealing, very attractive to plant a field uh, with wheat or with corn or with soybean or sunflower seed, whatever the most valued uh, commodity might be based on the economics for that producer, all of their input costs are higher as well. So they're not necessarily going to get this enormous margin, uh, this enormous increase in profitability by planting what looks like high prices for food. Um, and as you say, we have serious disruption to Ukraine, which is a major supplier, again, not just of wheat, but also of corn and sunflower seed oil. And expectations are now that um, those plantings, which are going to happen in a couple of weeks' time, could fall by as much as a third uh, going forward for this year. So those are enormous shortfalls for the um, market to have to, to do, adjust to. There has been a little bit of adjustment at the margins where you've had some drawdown of inventories from the big sort of Southern Hemisphere exporters, countries like Brazil uh, and Argentina. And those are actually flowing into this region already. So they're uh, exporting a little bit more than they would have been doing uh, historically. And thankfully, we also kind of had sort of normal-ish levels of carryover stocks from last season. So there is a little bit of room there to be able to draw down on inventories. But the issue with inventories is they always need to be replenished and, and uh, increased to make sure that you can accommodate further supply shortfalls or, or demand spikes going forward. So if we have a prolonged period where you have uh, you know, either one or two, Ukraine and Russia, of the largest wheat exporters uh, having their supplies unavailable to the market for a prolonged period, that could mean that we're dealing with elevated food costs for quite some time, even if we had a resolution to the conflict in the short term. Um, to what extent could consumers substitute, say, rice for wheat? I mean, is that is that something that's feasible? Sure. I think there is going to be some adjustment. And, and I think anybody you know carrying out your normal kind of grocery activity is going to see a material increase in your food costs over the next um, coming quarters. And those kind of replacement choices are going to have to be made. But then again, if people want to eat bread, if, you know, as, as Danny's laid out, we have the kind of socioeconomic infrastructure in this region, and particularly that is geared around uh, ensuring that there are adequate flour and bread supplies to the region, transferring everything over, uh, you know, the kind of wholesale buying and importing of those commodities to something else, there's going to be frictions associated with that. So while it might be easy at an individual level for us to choose between, you know, getting several loaves of bread or a kilogram of rice, um, it might not be so easy at a wholesale level or a kind of country level. Um, and also remember, anything that requires an agricultural input that's not just wheat, that's not just corn, that's going to include rice, um, is going to be affected by the higher input costs from fuel and from fertilizer as well. So we could be dealing with relatively lower yields um, in commodity markets that are not in any way exposed to the production concerns from the conflict. So rice production, obviously not something that's major in Russia uh, or, or in Ukraine, but parts of uh, Asia, which are big um, 
rice exporting countries as well will be dealing with those higher input costs. That's not a particularly optimistic picture about the outlook for food prices um, going forward, not in our region and, and not, not globally either. Um, so thank you very much for your insights, um, Ed and Danny. Uh, for the listeners, we hope you found this podcast useful and insightful. Um, if you'd like to know more about what we've been talking about today, we have published some reports on this issue and you can find those on our website www.emiratesmbdresearch.com. Please um, visit and, of course, you can subscribe to our research reports as well. Um, thank you very much for listening and we hope you will join us again next time. <laughs>